Good evening, everyone. It is so great to have you here in the house. And those of you who are tuning in from your house, welcome to Element City Church. Uh, we would love to connect with you, especially if you're new. If you're new turning, uh, tuning in, we would love to kind of follow up with you. And one way you can do that is on the upper right part of the screen. There's a connection card we would love to have you fill out. There'll be a couple quick texts, and that way you'll kind of get into a system. We know it takes courage coming to a new place and even tuning in and way for us to follow up with you is uh, we'll kind of be able to follow up with you over the next couple weeks or so. If you're here in the house, you can text the word hello to our text number 520-340-6868. Again, a couple quick texts and we're all connected and we'll walk alongside you for the next couple weeks. And if you are new in the house, we would love to meet you at the 10 minute party. Lyle will be back there afterwards. Excited to have Lyle back and preaching tonight. You're in for a treat as we continue our Tove series. If you are new. We meet you at the 10-minute party. We've got the best kettle corn this side of the Grand Canyon just to give you uh, and to connect with you, and I promise you'll love it. So uh, great to have you all here. I hope your January is going well, and um, as a church, every week we kind of pray for a church of the week, and this week is Tucson Church International. My buddy, Pastor Demetrius, is an awesome guy, and uh, in fact, I'm reminded it's been too long since I've had lunch with Demetrius, and I need to call him up this week. So uh, Demetrius and their church, Tucson Church International, meets kind of off of Flowing Wells area. And they, uh, one of the cool things that they've gotten to do is work with Gap Ministries over this last year and be able to donate like a million dollars worth of uh, furniture and housing goods into helping people in need across our city. And so that's one way their church is making a difference. And it's just fun as the church, getting to see different pockets of churches and how they're making a difference in their city in ways that we do that here. So a reminder again, Serve Sunday is coming up. Lyle will kind of touch on this at the end, just uh, kind of February 13th. Kind of put that away in your memory. Uh, we'll talk more about it in the weeks to come, but we'd love to, for you to be a part of serving with us around this city. So if you're here in the house, why don't you stand up right where you're at as people are making their way in. If you're at home, yeah, if you stand up if you want. Uh, but we'd love to pray for uh, Tucson Church International and for our time together tonight. And so, Father, we uh, we pause right now and we want to lift up Pastor Demetrius to you and, and their church body there at uh, Tucson Church International. Uh, what a great group of people. And uh, God, we know that there's a million plus people in our city and our surrounding area that isn't aren't connected to any faith community. And so we want to continue to champion your church. Uh, we're an expression of that, but we're one expression of that. And so we pray your blessing over Demetrius and over their team, their leadership body. We ask that you would fund and resource, that you would give them dreams and visions of how to continue to be your church in their neck of the woods. And God, we pray that you continue to do that here for Elements as well. Would you bless our time as we worship you now for a little bit, as we look into your word, bless uh, Lyle as he leads us in, in looking into what you have to say for us as we continue the series. And we worship together. Would you allow this experience to be one where your spirit is on the move and touching each heart and helping us be a better follower of Jesus, having left, leaving here in, a, in an hour or so. God, we love you and we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Would you allow us to worship and aim our, uh, our heart's attention and your direction these next few moments? Would you minister and mingle with us and change us in the process, we pray. And everyone said, amen. So don't let your heart be troubled Hold your head up high, don't fear no 
Fix your eyes on this one truth God is madly in love with you Take courage, hold on, be strong Remember where our help comes from
blood Jesus light of heaven friend forever his kingdom come
So 
just take this moment and we sing with our heart, hallelujah, before the mighty King. before you we humble ourselves the highest king who will always be worthy and the more we look at your glory the more we look at your beauty and your holiness and your character Lord the more we realize God that this is more than enough so tonight as we stay in your presence Lord may this is be more than enough and may our hearts be truly satisfied truly satisfied in you and by you because you are more than enough you are our greatest treasure lord and we have found you god so tonight may we take our eyes off our burden and give it all to you god our burden is already lifted by you god may we take our eyes from our troubles and our anxieties god and may we look at you, the one who is worthy, the one who is mighty, the one who is a provider, the one who cares, the one who has loved, the one who, has, who gave himself for each one of us, Lord. Our hearts are full of worship tonight. We acknowledge your beauty and we stand in awe of you. Tonight, God, we pray that you continue to change us and transform us so we become more like you, Jesus. We also pray, God, that Holy Spirit, you would empower and anoint as Lyle speak and his words, God. We pray that his words will plant a seed in our hearts, a seed that would grow and produce plentiful fruit, God, in your kingdom, in your church. We love you, God. We humble ourselves and we worship you. And may all God's children said, Amen. You may be seated. As we begin tonight, I just want to invite you to take a moment and reflect. And I want you to think about the dumbest thing that you have ever done in your life. I want you to just get it in your head. What was the stupidest moment where it was just like you had lost your wits? Like you just, for whatever reason, uh, all sense of reason was gone. And you just made the dumbest decision that you ever could have made in that moment. And I have this theory that a lot of us, we have friends that when you get around friends, there's certain groups of friends that your IQ drops immediately, right? So maybe for you, you're thinking of like, man, that was the dumbest moment in my life. I was with these friends and we definitely did some dumb things. Um, but I just want you to think about this though. If you've got that in your mind, the, the worst, maybe the dumbest moment of your life, what if you were defined by that moment? What if that moment were to define the person that you were and that you were going to be for the rest of your life? I could say the name Bill Buckner. 
And anybody who knows the game of baseball, you can think about the dumbest moment of Bill Buckner's life was in 1986 in the middle of the World Series. A routine ground ball comes to him, it goes right through his legs. The Red Sox lose the World Series, the curse continues. And this man could never live down this mistake. Forget the fact that he had won multiple gold glove awards, that he was a great fielder. One mistake defined the career of this man. And we think about sports, that happens so often. Uh, Chris Webber with his timeout uh, in the NCAA Final Four back in the early 90s. Uh, there, there's multiple instances that we can go back to people uh, that in, in really their, their biggest moment of weakness, they made a mistake, and that mistake defined them for the rest of their life. And so I wanna talk about tonight uh, this idea of creating a Tov culture. We've been uh, in this series that we're calling Tov, a culture of godly goodness. And as we seek to be a church that is known as a tov church, tov, the Hebrew word for good. Maybe you've heard the saying mazel tov, that's good luck, tov, right? So we want a, a culture that when God, he created things at the end of creating each day, he said what? He said it was good. And we want to be a church and, and a culture uh, that when people come into this place, they think this place is good. God's goodness resides here and dwells here. And so we're looking at uh, tonight this uh, idea of being a place of grace and being a place that puts people first. That's where we're going to be going. So that's just really the, the two points for tonight. I'll just give you the two main takeaways. How can we be a church that builds a culture of grace that rather than having an overemphasis on the law, we're going to be overemphasizing the grace of God. And rather than having an overemphasis on an institution, on the church, on the name, Element City Church, we want to be about putting the people first in this place. And so if you're joining us online, I just want to say thanks uh, for tuning in. For those of you who are here in the room, God's already at work in this place, is he not? That was just a beautiful time of worship to get to gather together. Uh, but I know for those who are at home, sometimes you get a little disconnected from that. Uh, and I just, maybe this isn't even Sunday night anymore. Maybe you, we're coming to you from the past and you're driving in your car and you're listening to this uh, on your phone. Uh, but I believe that God has a moment for every single one of us tonight. And so it doesn't matter if you're sitting in your living room, if you're sitting in your car, if you're here right now, I think that God wants to speak to us tonight. And I think there's gonna be a poignant moment for all of us uh, to respond to him. And so I just wanna invite you to lean into that and to believe that he's capable of doing that. So just to, to kind of set the stage here, uh, Jack's talked about this book that we've based this series on. It's called A Church Called Tove by Scott McKnight. For those of you who are at home, you can pull up Amazon right now and you can order it and get it shipped to you so that you can read it. For those of you in the room, technically you could do the same right now. I wouldn't judge you. It's a good book. You should get it. So Church Called Tove by uh, Dr. Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura Berenger. And we haven't really fully talked about it yet, but uh, this idea of a Tove culture, it, it's all meant to build on itself. That as we nurture these specific things, each thing will lead to the next thing, which will help us get to the next place of that, which will get us to the next place of that. And so I want to introduce you tonight to the circle of Tove, uh, which we've got the graphic here that'll show you uh, what that is. Some of you in the back, you may have a hard time seeing that. I apologize. That was the best that I could get. Please don't judge. Uh, but here's the seven steps that will help us to, to build a Tove culture. So one, we wanna nurture empathy and compassion. 
That's what Jack talked about last week. How do we develop an empathy radar for people that when uh, situations arise, rather than immediately going to judgment and immediately just thinking the worst in people, how do we have empathy in that situation? How do we relate to that person where they're at and have compassion for their circumstances so that we can see beyond the surface level? But as we grow in our empathy and our compassion, the next thing we wanna nurture is our, our grace. We wanna nurture graciousness. That's where we're going tonight and starting there. From there, we wanna nurture uh, putting people first. Rather than having, they call it institution creep in the book where people get so devoted to the institution that they forget about the people that make up the institution. We wanna be a place that honors people and their stories first. Uh, then from there, you wanna nurture telling the truth. We've all seen that, that in, in environments that start to get toxic, what happens when people are devoted to the institution uh, rather than to the people, narratives start to spin and they can spin out of control as places stop telling the truth. Why? Because they have to protect the powers that be, they have to protect the structure that is. And so they'll spin these false narratives that devalue people, that demean people. And we don't wanna be a place like that. We wanna be a place that tells the truth. And as we nurture truth, that means we can nurture justice. As we nurture justice, we can nurture service. As we nurture service, ultimately, what are we doing? We're nurturing Christ-likeness. That's the end goal. And as we become more like Christ, that enables us to have even more compassion and empathy, which allows us to be even more gracious. And you see how this circle of Tov works, that as we start with one and as we start to stack these principles on top of each other and live these things out, ultimately, what does it do? It leads to discipleship. It leads to us being more like Jesus, to having the heart that Jesus has for people, to loving people the way that Jesus loved people, to serving people the way that Jesus served people, to seeking justice the way that you get the point. The ultimate end goal here is Christ-likeness. And so tonight, as we uh, look into this idea of grace and putting people first, um, there's a really good uh, comment here Scott McKnight said in his book. He said that church as an institution can become coercive, but a people-first church will treat people with the highest degree of dignity, respect, and integrity. That's where we're going. That's what we want to talk about tonight. And so if you've got your Bible with you, uh, or if you're using the Bible app, we're going to be in the book of John, uh, chapter 8. So John chapter 8, uh, verses 2 through 11 is where we're going to be reading from. I'm going to be reading from the ESV uh, as we go there. So if you've got the, the Bible app on your phone, you can open there. We've got all the, the notes there uh, so that you can follow along. So John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11 says this. Early in the morning... He came again to the temple. He's being Jesus here. So Jesus can't, comes to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Now remember, anytime a rabbi sits down, if a teacher sits down, their teaching is important. This is an important moment. Quick little aside there. Verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, 
Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's a beautiful passage. This is a beautiful picture here that I think really captures the essence of of both aspects of what we want to talk about tonight. What happens when there's an overemphasis on institution and on law? What we see is what happened here with the Pharisees, what they do to this woman. And yet what we're going to see is in Jesus' response and the way that he responds with so much grace, not just to the woman who was caught in adultery, but even to those who are trying to trap Jesus. The grace that he shows to them, it's a beautiful picture. So we want to unpack this a little bit. Uh, so we're going to get the nerd out going on, five-minute nerd out. We've got a couple people with their hats here tonight. Uh, so we're just going to get some context for this passage um, Real quick aside, this has nothing to do with the sermon. If you've noticed in your Bible, this might have brackets around it. Some people freak out because they're like, what do the brackets mean? And then you read about it and they're like, early transcripts don't actually have this in the passage. And that's true. Some of the earliest transcripts that we have of, of Scripture doesn't include this passage in the book of John. In fact, as scholars have analyzed uh, this section of Scripture, uh, we have no reason to believe that this didn't happen. We have no reason to think that Jesus didn't actually have this encounter with this woman. Um, but the language that's used, maybe it would fit better in the book of Luke. But, you know, like there's lots of people out there who want to scare you into being like, oh, don't believe the Bible because this is the case. No, we know that, all right? Like we can openly admit these things, but we also know that this story actually fits within the personhood of Jesus, within his character. And it's absolutely something that we've got enough uh, writings about to believe that this is a good thing. So there's your quick aside. Don't be freaked out if you see that in your Bible. It's okay, I promise. All right, we good? Sweet, all right, one person's good. So that's the, the, the nerdy stuff that I care about that I just wanna make sure there's maybe one other person in the room who might care about that. You don't need to, okay? Second thing here, this is probably happening in the last week of Jesus' ministry. And we know this because uh, actually the, the end of John chapter seven, uh, going into this talks about how Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And so we know that during Jesus' last week of ministering uh, in Jerusalem, he would go stay in Bethany, uh, or Bethany, Bethel, uh, Bethany, yes, on the Mount of Olives, and then he would travel into Jerusalem. And so, This is what Jesus has done. He's come down, he's in the temple, and he's teaching in the temple. So this is probably after he's cleared out the temple. And if you remember back in our parable series, uh, the Pharisees kept coming to Jesus trying to trap him. Why? Because Jesus was a problem. Jesus changed everything for these religious leaders. And so these Pharisees, these scribes, the Sanhedrin, what did they want to do? They wanted to maintain their power. They wanted to consolidate their power. And so they needed to remove Jesus from the equation to make sure that that could happen. And that's the context that we get here. We see that in the text, that Jesus is in the middle of teaching. He's sitting down. This is a big moment. And yet because he's in the outer courts of the temple in a very public place, This is absolutely something that would happen. That people who wanted to make a spectacle could interrupt the teacher to try to get the teacher to trip up or try to get the teacher to say something that they want the teacher to say. And in this case, what do we see with these guys? We see that they want to trip up Jesus because they want to bring something against him. And so you're probably wondering like, okay, well, how does that work? The way that it's working here is Jesus... Uh, or as this woman comes up and they catch her in adultery, uh, they're, they're making it pretty clear. What does the law of Moses say that we're supposed to do with this woman? We caught her in adultery. Moses tells us we're supposed to stone her. Are we, are we going to stone her or what? What do you say? And, and the reason they're doing this is if, if you know anything about the time, if you research the time, it's actually been hundreds of years 
hundreds of years since anybody in Jerusalem would have followed the Mosaic law. So these men really have no intention of stoning this woman and having her put to death. But here's their thinking. If we can get Jesus to say, well, yeah, you're supposed to stone her, put her to death. Now Jesus is usurping the Roman authority because remember, Jerusalem is under the rule of Rome right now. And so if Jesus is saying that people are supposed to be put to death, he's usurping the Roman leadership. The Romans don't like that. So if, if Jesus says that, now they can take him before the Roman leadership. They can get Jesus arrested. They can get him in trouble. But Jesus, being a good Jewish rabbi, he can't go against the law of Moses, right? So they think they've got Jesus backed into a corner. Because now here's Jesus who's, who's yeah, the law of Moses rightfully does say if someone's caught in adultery, they're supposed to be put to death. Why? Because God wanted his people to be holy. The marriage covenant between a man and a woman was always symbolic of God's covenant relationship with his people. And so when a man and a woman were joined together, that was sacred before the Lord, and it still is today. And so when someone defiles that covenant, they were to be put to death because God couldn't tolerate that level of sin. That's a heavy thing. That's a heavy thing to think about. And yet that's the beauty of marriage today is that we still get to represent that. But now that we're in a culture of grace, obviously this whole, you know, being put to death thing, don't worry, we're not gonna pick up rock for anybody's indiscretions in this room. So these guys come forward. This is what they're ultimately trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus uh, is brilliant in what he does. I love this. They, they ask him the question, what does Jesus do? He slow plays it, right? He's just sitting on the ground. He starts drawing on the ground. And it's so funny that like, I've heard, how many of you have heard the sermons where the, the preacher is like, I think Jesus was writing this on the ground. He was writing out this thing. You know, there's all these like inspirational guesses that pastors like to put out there. Of, he was writing the sins of all the people who were there and he was just calling him out. And so they're seeing all the sins being written down. And you know, like we get all these pictures in our mind. Here's the deal. It doesn't matter what Jesus was writing. If it mattered, it would be there. We would see in the text what it was that he's saying. But what I think Jesus is doing is he's buying time to make a point. Silence makes points, doesn't it? How many times have you been in a classroom or in a, a TED talk that you've watched or you know, even in a sermon and uh, the, the person speaking just gets real quiet? For just a little too long? and it builds up that tension. And if you haven't been paying attention because all of a sudden it's really quiet, if it's a little too quiet, you, all of a sudden you're like super hyper aware, like, is everyone looking at me? Like, I don't know about you, but that would totally happen to me in class sometimes when a teacher would get quiet. And so Jesus just buys this time and he says, cool, let him who is without sin be the first among you to throw the stone. And then he just goes back to writing in the ground. I like to think it's kind of the Kermit victory sip, you know, in the meme with the tea, that Jesus like drops the tea on them. And it's just like, mm-hmm. Because here's the brilliance of what Jesus did there. The book of Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus, they made it very clear that yes, this woman should have been uh, stoned to death. However, what Jesus is saying here, a lot of times we're thinking like, hey, whoever's without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone. And we're just like, everyone has sin. That's not what the law would have required. 
what the Mosaic law would have required is that there would have been two witnesses to the act that took place, and the two witnesses would be the first ones to throw the stone. However, the two who witnessed the act could not be guilty of the same thing. So maybe if two people had caught this woman in adultery and they weren't adulterers themselves, they could have been the first to pick up the stones and stoned her to death. But that's not what happens, is it? In fact, what we see happens is starting with the oldest to the youngest Pharisees. They each drop their stone and they walk away. Condemned. Why? Because Jesus had made it clear, even before this, that if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed the act of adultery. And so Jesus, just in this moment, confounds the wisdom of the, the scribes and the Pharisees because he's upholding the Mosaic law. He's upholding what should have happened. And yet he recognizes that these men are so wicked and so cruel in what they have done that what it really tells us is that if they caught this woman in adultery and yet they weren't willing to throw a stone, that they were somehow complicit in her adultery. And think about that. As we talk about this idea of grace and putting people first, how devoted to an institution and how sick do you have to be that you would try to trap somebody in something and bring them before their maker and say, this person deserves to die. Not because you even care about justice, but only because you care about getting this person killed. Not even this woman, you care about this guy. And so we're gonna defile her. We're gonna take her in the dumbest, in the worst mistake that she has made in her life, in her shame and in her vulnerability, and we're gonna completely expose her, not even caring about her, because all we care about is our institution and our power, and we wanna maintain it. It's disgusting, and it's revolting, and Jesus sees that. And yet, how does he respond? He responds with this grace that he just gently calls out, okay, Whoever among you can uh, uphold the Mosaic law, by all means, please do. And they walk away one by one. And the beauty of what happens after that, that Jesus stands up and he grabs this woman. He says, where are your accusers? Where are they? They're all gone. And she says that, no one's here. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either, so go and sin no more. Notice, Jesus, the question of her guilt doesn't matter. It's assumed she's guilty. She was caught in the act. And Jesus doesn't address that. The beauty of that moment, his grace is extended saying, the people who accuse you, they're not even here. There's no one who accuses you anymore. Go and sin no more. How life-changing was that for that woman, do you think, in that moment of her dumbest, biggest mistake that she's probably ever made in her life that Jesus would lovingly look into her eyes and say, I don't condemn you. What would that mean to you if you were to think of the worst moment of your life, if there was someone who was standing there and told you, I don't condemn you? We all need people like that in our lives. And if we can become a church that would embody this, this Tove culture of putting people first and of putting grace first. Think of what a difference that could make in people's lives. And so uh, Scott, in his book, 
he has five points that I just want us to go through real quick about how do we help develop this type of a culture, this type of a tov culture, where we seek goodness uh, of people and we seek to show grace to people. And so the first thing he says is this, number one, treat people as people. Treat people as people. You look at the way that the, the Pharisees treated this woman. It wasn't about the woman. It wasn't even about the action. She was a means to an end for them. And so they just completely dishonor this woman. They completely embarrass and shame her because they're so intent on getting a different solution. And yet as a church, we want to treat people as people. We want to see them. Uh, I love, again, Scott McKnight said this in his book. He said, the circle of Tov begins when a church sees people as people and treats them as people by nurturing them to become what God designed them to be. People with names and histories and stories. People who are doing well and people who are not. People who are recovering from church abuse. People who've had surgeries and sicknesses. People who are aging. People who are rich and poor and everything in between. People who are wounded and in need of healing. People who are unemployed and underemployed. People who need encouragement or tangible assistance. The essence of treating people as people can be summed up in 12 simple words from Jesus. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. We want to treat people as people. And when we as a church start to see each other as individuals with stories, with histories, with backgrounds, that yeah, we've got baggage. Every one of us has baggage and that's okay. It doesn't matter. We can see past all of that. We can love each other well. We can rally around each other. When we do that, that will help us build a culture that will put people first, a culture that's full of grace. Secondly, actively seek to include others. Actively seek to include others. Here's the challenge. When you're in a church that's of this size right now, it's easy to know each other. Look around the room. I'm, I'm for real. Just take a moment and kind of glance around the room. I know it's awkward. You're like, oh, I don't look at people all the time. I'm telling you, look around the room. There's not a ton of people in here. We don't get to see all of you and your lovely faces at home, but we know you're there and we thank you for joining us. But when we're a church of this size, we can get to know each other. And yet what we also saw is just in the past, gosh, since June of last year, what was it, Jack? We've had like 80 or 90 plus people that have come and visited Elements for the first time. Like that's double what's in this room right now. And so as we, as we grow as a church, it can be really easy to, to stop including others. And yet what I've been so impressed with is just the way that, that there's a group of people in our church that are committed, that if it's your first Sunday uh, coming to church and you wanna go to dinner and get to know the different people who go to dinner after church, they'll buy dinner for you your first week. They're committed to doing that. Why? Because they want to include others into this community. We wanna grow the community and not be a closed off community. You look at the religious leaders. What were they doing here with this woman who's caught in adultery in verse five? They're literally trying to permanently exclude her from the in crowd for the rest of her life because of what she did. That's not actively doing anything but seeking the harm of others. The opposite of that is, is to what? Is to make sure that as new people come in, we receive them with open arms and we understand they're people. We're gonna treat them as people. So they've got a story, they've got a history, they've got baggage, like I said, and yet it doesn't matter. We want to envelop them into the community. This is why we think it's so important for you to get involved in an e-group or to get involved in a discipleship group. 
Because to, to be actively included, like you need to get opportunities to be around people and get to know people. And so we, we talk to our leaders. We want them to recruit. We want them to invite people to their groups. We want to make sure that people know the opportunities that they have to get connected in this church. That's why we do the 10-minute party. That's why we do the connection card. Because we want to make sure people can be included and know that this is a place that they can belong. This is a place that they can belong. You see, uh, the culture of law, uh, it disqualifies people for failing to maintain a standard. When you don't uphold this standard, the culture of law wants to dismiss those people and make sure that they're on the outside. And yet, a culture of grace seeks to empower people to grow from their failures. That's the type of community that we want to be. As we include people, we understand that failure will happen. We're each going to have a bad day. For some of you, as you're thinking about the dumbest thing you've done in your life, spoiler alert, the dumbest thing you have, you may not have actually done it yet. That's a scary thought, right? Like for me, I'm just like, I hope that that's not in my future. I hope that's in my past, whatever that dumb thing might be. But the reality is for those of us in this room, there's at least one person that their dumbest thing is, is before them. It's, it's, it's ahead. And we as a church are gonna need to be able to rally around that person to help them grow from that so they can be empowered to be the person that God wants them to be. Thirdly, we wanna see people as made in God's image. See people as made in God's image. This is a life-changing principle that if we can get this right, we will drastically transform the way that our culture views the church. It will drastically transform the way our culture thinks about Christians. If we begin to see people, every person, as made in the image of God, treat them accordingly. Scott McKnight said this in his book. He said, at the heart of theological malpractice, is a failure to treat all people as God's image bears. That's a heavy thought. At the heart of theological malpractice, when theology lived out goes bad, what's at the root of it? It's failing to see somebody as made in the image of God. And I'll never forget, Francis Chan said this years ago. He said, I encourage you to treat every person that you interact with as if you're interacting with Jesus Christ himself. Just that thought alone, when, when Jesus talks about whatever you do for the least of these, you're doing for me. If we could have that mindset that of every person that we were interacting with, if that person was Jesus Christ himself, how might that change the way that we speak to people, the way we respond to people, the way that we listen to people? It would change everything, wouldn't it? And so we wanna see people as made in the image of God. Number four, we want to treat people as siblings. This one is kind of fun for me. Uh, as a worship leader, how many times do you hear us yell out, come on, church? Right? Like, that's the big thing in, in the worship circle right now. It's everything's church. All right, church. Like, we just refer to everyone generally as church. Uh, and yet, the interesting thing is in Scripture, uh, the, the church isn't really referred to as the church as much as they're referred to as a family, as siblings, as brothers and sisters. And so maybe that's the challenge for me in the coming weeks. It's like, come on, brothers and sisters, let's sing. Instead of, come on, church, let's sing. But we want to treat people as siblings. Uh, and you think about this woman caught in adultery. If we go back to that story, you don't treat your sister by dragging her out by her hair into the middle of the ground 
in the middle of her most vulnerable moment to shame her, do you? You protect your sister. You rally around your family. That's a big principle that if we could see each other in this building, the church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we actually believed was true, how might that change and transform the way the world views us and the way that we love each other? This is huge. And yet so often we think of the church and we think maybe the church was a military system, that there's all this leadership and there's a hierarchy to everything. Some people want to see the church as like a governmental type system. They want to see uh, all this, uh, you know, theocratic system where there's this rule of law that comes from the holy books or whatever it may be. Uh, There's multiple different ways to view the church. Some people think of it as an educational system. And yet at the end of the day, what is the church? It's a family system. God the Father. We have our dad. We've got big brother in Jesus. And he's the one who's in charge of it all. And yet, how crazy is that to think? Your brother in Christ is Christ. That's a profound thought, that the Son of God is our sibling. And that's why Peter talks about the fact that we get to be partakers in the divine nature. That's beautiful, that because of your relationship with Jesus, you too get access to the divine. Wow. But what if we began to actually live this out that as brothers and sisters in Christ, that when things got tough, we knew that was when it was time to circle the wagons. We knew that that was time to shore up and to make sure that we're there for that person who needs us. For far too long, the church has had a reputation for shooting their own wounded. We've gotta change that. We've gotta be a people who are committed to living out the grace that Jesus lived out and modeled for us And live that out in such a way that our brothers and sisters feel protected and feel empowered and feel that they're able to grow and become who they were meant to be. And so we recap real quick. We want to treat people as people. We actively want to seek to include others. We want to see people as made in God's image. We want to treat people as siblings. And lastly, we want to develop Jesus-like eyes for people. Develop Jesus-like eyes for people. You look at the, the eyes that Jesus looked upon this woman with. And what does he do? Again, there's no question about her guilt. Jesus knows her guilt. He's the son of God. He knows everything she did, not just that mistake. He knows everything. And yet he went out of his way to pick her up after she's been shamed and humiliated. And he wiped away the shame. He didn't even address it. He just immediately said, I don't condemn you. Go sin no more. He's empowering her to go live a life now where she's been freed from the guilt and the shame of the things that she's committed. And she's free to go live the way that Jesus has always wanted her to live for him, for his glory. That's our story. That's your story. If you're in Christ, that's your story. And yet how often do we forget what God has done for us? And because we forgot what he's done for us, we fail to extend that to others when they need the same. 
And that's why I started the way that I did tonight. That's why I want us to get in our mind that picture of what's the dumbest thing you've ever done? What is the biggest mistake that you've ever made in your life? And how did you feel in that moment? Who was there for you in that moment that loved you and that saw past all of that to help you be who you are today? Because if we wanna be a Tov church, a church of goodness, if we can develop Christ-like eyes for people to see in people the things that Jesus saw in us when we were unworthy and there was nothing lovely in us, man, what kind of transformational value or impact could that have in another person's life if we extend that same type of love and grace to someone else? What if we could be that person for someone else? I believe that every single one of you sitting here, that God has called you at some point in your life to be that person for someone. And I think that that's a profound calling. But what would that look like? What would that take for us to be that type of person? You look at Jesus in, in this situation with the woman in adultery, it shows that he was far more righteous and far wiser than any of the Jewish leaders at the time. And I think that that's what's such, such an amazing thing here is you've got these men who uh, just want to defile this woman and protect their power and protect this institution. And Jesus just completely throws that out the window, just immediately, just shames them and, and exposes their own corruption in their own heart. And it really, it leads to this kind of this moment of shame for them which I would hope would lead to repentance. We don't know. And yet it just shows how Jesus confounded the wisdom of the time to be able to not just uphold the Mosaic law of what it said was true, but also to make sure that they couldn't even trap him. And so we get the best of both worlds, that here's Jesus, the institution himself. Think about that. Jesus is the institution himself. And rather than having to protect his own institution, what does he do? He uses that moment to extend grace to somebody. How can we become people like that? How can we be people who do that ourselves? Galatians 2.16, it says this. It says, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we've believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Jesus understood that he didn't need to uphold the rules of the institution in that moment because that's not what speaks volumes to people. It's the grace that he showed that spoke tremendously. And so I don't know about you, but for me, if I wanna figure out what does it look like to lift something like this out, I wanna get a good picture in my head of somebody who knows how to do that. I want a, a, somebody who's modeled it for me, someone tangible, like Jesus. If you walked with Jesus, the disciples, you know, if they kind of lost sight of Jesus, it's like, Jesus, what's going on? Oh, you're over there. Hey, buddy. You know, and they just go back and they see Jesus and they get to walk with Jesus. We don't have that luxury today, do we? And so we get to look to other areas. And I think that there's one person uh, who really embodied this in a beautiful way. And that's Fred Rogers. How many of you grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? That was less than I thought. That's all right. Fred Rogers um, was 
just an incredible man of God. Incredible man of God. Uh, and just in preparing for this, uh, a couple of years ago, actually, I watched the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? I grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and I just always loved the show. Um, but I watched that documentary. It just reminded me of what a profound impact he had in society. And so I watched it again this week just to kind of remember uh, and, and kind of do some research on, on this. And there, there was just such an intentionality to the way that Fred Rogers lived his life. This man went to uh, college, he studied uh, childhood development, and then he really felt called by God to go to seminary, but then television came out, and he's just like, this is such a weird medium, TV. And he was seeing all these pies in the faces and all the slapstick comedy, and he's like, this is such a, a profound medium, and this is all we're using it for? And he wanted to redeem that. And so he still went to seminary. He got ordained as a Presbyterian minister to go into the field of television. His ordination was literally to go into television. And he lived his life with such a remarkable devotion to people that it was profound. That if you watch this documentary and you see footage of the way that children and adults alike would come to him and they would just thank him for the profound impact that he had in their life. And if you saw the gratitude in his face, you knew it was genuine. Just every person that would come to him, he would thank them for sharing their story, for letting him know the impact that he had, and he let them know that it had an impact on him, that they would even take the time to share that. It is absolutely beautiful. And Maxwell King was, uh, wrote a biography on Fred Rogers, and he said this. He said, Fred Rogers never, ever let the urgency of work or life impede his focus on what he saw as basic human values, integrity, respect, responsibility, fairness, and compassion, and kindness. In other words, people first. Scott McKnight said this, he said, he simply put Tove into practice and stubbornly, consistently stayed with it. Certainly that avenue is open to all of us. Tove always takes root first in the hearts of individuals who then work together with like-minded others to create a goodness culture. Fred Rogers could have been all about his institution. He could have all been, been all about the neighborhood, all about the following that he built up. And yet there was a profound humility in him that at the beginning of every day, he would spend uh, significant time praying that God would prepare him for the people that he would get to meet, that God would show him what he was to say and how he was to interact so that he could be a blessing to that person. He always wanted to be prepared to be who he needed to be so that he could represent his faith and he could represent Christ to people the way that he knew that he was called to do so. And we can live with that kind of a focus and that kind of an intentionality too. But I love this uh, in, in the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, why, why did Fred show so much grace to people? How was he able to do it? And his, one of his producers, Hedda Sherapan, said this. She said, Fred would say, the most important learning, it's the ability to accept and expect mistakes and to deal with the disappointments they bring. What if we were a church that had the ability to accept and accept, expect mistakes? What if we weren't afraid of that when people came to us with their brokenness and their mistakes? We didn't feel like we had to run away from them. 
We didn't feel like we had to hide them from any other new people. But we could be the type of people who would see Jesus in that person, the image of God in that person, would rally around them and love them and restore them and help empower them to be who God wants them to be. Never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to transform people through grace-filled environments. And so as we wrap up, you can bow your heads. Let's close our eyes. Um, One of the things that uh, Fred Rogers would do, uh, he was a very sought-after commencement speaker. Uh, In fact, he was uh, asked to speak at over hundreds of graduations over the years. And one of the things he would do during all of those ceremonies is he would have people stop and he would say, for every single one of you, there's somebody who smiled you into smiling. There's someone who loved you into loving. There's someone who believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself. And so he would take a minute and he would literally time out a minute and he'd say, I want you to think about that person for the next minute. Just think about them in your heart. And so we started tonight by thinking about what is the the worst mistake that you've ever made in your life? And so I just want us to take a moment to think of that person, that when that mistake happened, who was the person who loved you through that moment? Maybe it was your mom or your dad. Maybe you had a friend, a sibling. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was Jesus himself. But with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's just think of the grace that Jesus has shown to you. That even when you were at your worst and you made your worst choices, he was still there and he still loved you. And as you continue to reflect, I want you to picture what would it look like for you to be that person in someone else's life? What would it look like for us to be a church full of people who are ready to be those conduits of grace who put people first? What kind of character would we need to have? What kind of grace and compassion would we need to show? What things from our past would we need to remember so that we could keep in mind how we've been redeemed, how someone did that for us once before, and that God is calling every one of us and has empowered us to be that type of a person for someone else.
Lord, I don't want us to just rush through this moment. I do believe that this is a holy space where you wanna speak. That there are people in this room who've experienced trauma in their past from their own mistakes. And maybe they didn't have that person of grace in their life to love them through it. Jesus, you see that person. Would you bring healing to their heart tonight? Would you put a person of peace in their life to extend your grace to them, to help them to see the way forward from that? For those of us who had that person of peace, we thank you, God, that you provided that for us, that you've given us that person who loved us into being able to love, who believed in us so much that we were able to become who we are today. And for those of us who, who've experienced that, God, show us what it will take, what we need to do each and every day so that we can go then be those types of people with those we get to interact with, bringing the hope and the light of Jesus with us as we do that. God, you want this church to be a place of tov. You want the culture in this place to be a place of goodness. And we wanna be people who contribute to that. So help us as brothers and sisters to know each other's stories, to know each other's pasts, our failures and our successes, to be able to celebrate those together, to grieve them together. Help us to become the family that you have called us to be so that we can live this truth out to a world that needs to see it a world that needs to experience that kind of love and that kind of goodness. We love you, Jesus. Would you continue to move in this time?
Yeah, Jesus, we just stand in that amazing grace tonight. We thank you uh, that we get to, to be partakers of the divine nature, that you have redeemed us uh, for those of us who are in you so that we could uh, live the abundant life that you would restore us so that we could help restore others uh, who are in the same place of brokenness that we were once before. So God, help us just to be a church that lives that out. Help us to be brothers and sisters uh, who build this family system uh, that support each other, that love each other and empower each other into being uh, all of who you have called us to be, every bit of it. That's what we want, Jesus. We pray that in your name. Amen. Amen. Real quickly, before we let you go, just thanks for coming tonight. Thanks for being a part of uh, Element City Church. We do our giving a little bit differently around here. Uh, we've got boxes in the back that people can drop their tithes and offerings into. Most people give online anyways through the church app. But for those of you, uh, those of you who partner with us and do give, thank you so much uh, for believing in the mission of the church and, and helping us fund uh, this church to do the things that it does in the city. A uh, couple things coming up. One, this coming Saturday, if you're one of our small group leaders or small group hosts, we're going to be doing training here at the church at 10 a.m. Maybe you're not a part of a small group yet, but you, you want to start one or you want to start a discipleship group and provide some leadership to that. Uh, come talk to me afterward. We'll get you the information so that you could be a part of that as well. Uh, the other big thing coming up is Serve Sunday. That's coming up super Bowl Sunday. And so one of the challenges of being a church that meets at night is uh, sometimes there's cultural events that will clash with what you do. Can you believe it that the week of Lost, how many of you remember the show Lost? That had a terrible finale, right? Like what did they, they never even addressed the polar bear guys. What's going on? Point is, the night of the series finale of Lost, we had like a huge down night at Elements. Hugely down, it was crazy. We had like 20 people there. It was insane. So instead of going up against big cultural events, here's what we do. We use technology, we pre-record services. So you can have your service at any point in the day, but we're not gonna be meeting that Sunday night here at church. We're gonna be meeting online only, but when we do meet in person, we're gonna meet in the morning and we're gonna do service projects around the city. So if you wanna sign up, we've got a space for 35 people to sign up to serve over at uh, the Gospel Rescue Missions uh, Center for Opportunity. Uh, so you can get uh, plugged in there if you want to, but what we're really trying to encourage is get with your e-group, if you're in an e-group, and find a project in a neighborhood or somewhere local here in town where you can get involved together and, and do something to be the church. That's the goal. So that's gonna be Sunday, February 13th. Uh, like we said, we've got those e-groups and discipleship groups. If you wanna know more about that, uh, you can talk to Amy in the foyer. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet because uh, we're going to be getting ready to start those discipleship groups up in the next couple weeks as well for the year. Um, but yeah, if any of you need prayer, uh, I'll be in the back at the 10-minute party. Jack will be back there as well. We'd love to meet anyone who's new. We'd love to pray with you. Most of all, we hope you have a blessed week. We hope you have a great week. Thanks for joining us tonight. We look forward to seeing you next week. We love you guys.